And speaking of big events, this is my first time to give you a, a, a shout out on this. On December the 2nd, New Springs Winter Tour, New Springs Christmas Tour is coming to New Spring. Uh, new Song. New Songs Christmas Tour is coming to New Spring. There we go. Audio Adrenaline will be here in several groups. It's going to be awesome. So there will be... You, and you need to get your tickets ASAP because we'll probably sell out pretty fast. I'll get your words on that real quick on how you can do that. Um, I want to talk about time tonight um, because time is a challenging subject for me. Um, I was thinking the other day, I read something in the paper about a guy who was on a road trip. I mean, it's because I guess I'm thinking about doing the series road trip. And he had to like, like drive for 25 hours straight. So he had driven all night and he was exhausted. And, got to a town and found what he thought was really a nice, safe place, pulled his car over to get like an hour or two of sleep. What he didn't realize he had done was he had parked right beside a jogging trail early in the morning. And so he, he just got off to sleep when all of a sudden there was a knock at his window and the jogger came out and he put the window down and he said, the jogger said, uh, do you know what time it is? And the man said, it's 8 o'clock. And so he keyed his window back up, went back, just got back to sleep. Another jogger do you know what time it is, sir? He said, well, it's 8.15. And then he got, you know, even madder, but he went, managed to get back to sleep. 30, you know, 15 minutes later, a jogger came by and said, do you know what time it is, sir? He said, it's 8.30. And he got so frustrated with it, he just put up a sign. He just took, you know, some, some paper from a sack that he'd had a hamburger, you know, and he, he, he taped it on the side of his door, and it said, he wrote, I do not know what time it is. He just got back to sleep, and, and something jogger said, sir, it's 845. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> I sort of struggle with time in lots of ways like that. I want to bring you a talk tonight called Strategically Placed. Strategically Placed. And even though this is not technically part of the road trip series, there are times when I want to share something with you, and it, it just doesn't make the cut for a series, but in reality, it's a, it's a very important concept. And uh, so, you know, if you've been here for a road trip, we're, we're looking at the life of Abraham. And in week one, uh, God came to Abraham and he said to him, I want you to leave. Well, we read this in the first week, Genesis 12:1. The Lord had said to Abraham, leave your native country, your relatives, and your father's family, and go to the land that I will show you. In effect, God was saying to him, and we talked about this as it relates to our life, there is a place that is about us. And there is a place that is about God. Now, in Abraham's case, it was geographical and spiritual. But I think for most of us, it's spiritual. There is a place that is about us. How we conduct our sex life, what we watch and use for entertainment, how we spend our money, people we hang with, um, how, who we're looking out for. There is a place that is about us. And some of us, like when Abraham was found by God, are in that place. And if we would be honest, we would have to say, the place where I am is about me. There is a place available to you and me, if you're a Christ follower, that is about God. And in that place, God is the center of things. His will, His purpose, His grace, 
His provision for you. And if you, like Abraham, are willing to leave the place that is about you, you can live in the place that is about him. And once, if you ever experience, once you've had a taste of living in the place that is about him, you will never want to go back to the place that is about you. The tragedy is most Christians will never leave the place that is about them. I talk to pastors all the time. And uh, my phone rings constantly. And so many times they want to know about New Spring and how a church transitions because the New Spring story, as is, is Jay Strack told you when he was here, is, is gone around the country because it's very unusual for a church to fully transition. In fact, it, it's like the Loch Ness Monster. People have heard it, but they've never seen it. But it happened here. And so because of that, I talk to pastors all the time. And, and I tell them, here's what's got to happen in the church. The church that you serve has got, to go, has got to go from being about the people who come to being about the people who are not there yet. And the people who come have to be about people who are not there yet. If you're a new springer, that's just our DNA. If you're a new springer, you're, you're like the Marines, you know. Uh, you, you, you know, not everybody can be a Marine. And not everybody would want to be a new springer. You know, and we sort of think about that. Because if you think about our guests... Everything pretty much is about them, from the people who help them find a parking place to the person who helps a get, gives a guest a cup of coffee and people who help them find their groups and all that. You know, that's why 800 volunteers. I mean, I got here at 7.15 last weekend, and the volunteer team was already here wearing badges and lanyards and excited about the 8.15 service. Why? Because New Springers are about people who aren't here yet. Traditional church is all about them because, after all, they bring the money and they pay the preacher, and they pay the bills. And so consequently, by George, it better please them. Well, New Spring, we don't even think like that because we're thinking about other people, and yet the irony is you know, there's some delicious ironies in following Christ. Like Jesus said, if you want to be elevated, then humble yourself. If you want to receive, then you give. And the strange thing is when a church is about people who are building bridges to people who need Christ, they get more out of their church than other people get out of their church. We get the blessing, see, of being in that place that's about God. And once you've ever been in that place that is about God, like Abraham, you may, have, you may slip and fall and you may have some detours, but you never do want to go back to Ur. Now, up till now, we have talked about two components. We have talked about you and a place. Tonight, I want to... I want to teach an advanced course. I want to teach something that goes beyond that. I want to add a third component. I want to talk about you and a place and something else. I want to talk about three components coming into uh, uh, confluence. I want to add a third component. Look at our country tonight. That's not a real pleasant thing to do sometimes. When you look at the current conditions of America, and I'm not talking about the government shutdown. I'm talking about the moral shutdown. I'm not nearly as concerned about the government shutting down as I'm concerned about the family shutting down and manhood shutting down and womanhood shutting down and 
and children, you know, the, the parent-child relationship shutting down. That's what I'm concerned about. 80% of your fellow citizens claim to be followers of Jesus Christ. Let me ask you a question. Suppose that only a third of those were truly followers of Jesus. Could I ask you, would we be where we are tonight? I don't believe for a moment we would be where we are if even 20% of Americans followed Jesus. Don't you think that if every Christ follower in this country, let, let's just break this down to this room. Don't you feel like if every Christ follower in this room fully went to the place that is about God, don't you believe that this would be a different city? Don't you believe that our families would be different families? And if the Christ followers in America would go to the place that is about Christ, not the place that is about them, and seize the moments, don't you believe this would be a different country? Why is it in the 20th century, in the first decade of the 21st century, why is it that the Church of Jesus Christ was one of the most under, underproductive entities in the whole culture? While technology was exploding, while, while production was exploding, the churches of Jesus Christ were in decline. The, the one entity that had the opportunity to truly influence the culture. See, here's the thing. One of the problems that American believers have is that, well, you know, we need to influence the country politically. All of us need to be good, good stewards of the voting ballot. But I will tell you this. If you really want to change America, then start living the life of a Christian man or a Christian woman. That'll change the country. I mean, here's the thing. Countries do not change because their laws are good. Ch countries change because people's hearts are turned toward God. Why? Why do you think we don't do what we can do? Well, I don't think it's because we don't care. Because I believe we care. I don't believe it's because we're not gifted. Because we are gifted. I sure don't believe it's because we don't have resources. We are the richest generation of Christians in the history of the world. When Jesus talked about rich people having a hard time going to heaven, he was talking about the average American. And who among us would say, considering that it's the work of Jesus Christ, that we don't have time? One of the earliest series I ever did at this church and it wasn't even boxed, but it's the one I wish had been boxed because I would love to get my hands on it. I've, I've lost the messages that I preached. But some of the old timers around here, Dan Kubish, Dan and Debbie and others, will refer to this series from time to time. I did a series, I think it was in 1990, called Satan's Custom-Made Lies for Christians. What a brand. By the way, the series of the year is coming up. It's called The Thing. <laughs> and I got to tell you, I haven't seen anything yet. This, that's that's going to be the series of the year. But I, I did a series called Satan's Custom-Made Lies for Christians, and I do remember, you know, as a 33-year-old uh, pastor preaching this series about how that, you know, Satan doesn't trip us up with the lies that he uses in the world. For instance, let me, Satan's never going to get you on the lie that there is no God. You know there is a God. 
Satan is never going to get you on the lie that God's word is not true because you know God's word is true. Satan is never going to get you on the lie that there was no such person as Jesus Christ because you know him. So Satan's got some custom-made lies that he keeps under the shelf in boxes wrapped in green paper that he saves just for you and for me. And here is one of the lies that I think is a custom-made lie for you and me. And the reason why Christ followers in America and in Wichita are not making the difference that we can make. And here is the lie. You ready for this? This is not a good time. This is not a good time. Now, here is the advanced lesson I want to teach tonight. I want to bring together three components. You and a place and this time. I want you to think about the fact that you are God's daughter, God's son. There is a place that is about him and the time. I want you to think about these three elements. Because I believe there are some of you tonight who truly want to be in the place that is about God, and you have great opportunities. But when those opportunities show up, you say to yourself, this is not a good time. I'm not at the right place at this time to take on bold agendas for God. Maybe the time is too good. I think there are a lot of new springers if that's the case. The time for you is too good. You, you've got the credentials, you've got the business, you've got the job, you've got the money, you've got stuff going on. See, when times are, prosperous times tend to come with added responsibilities. You know, if you've been laid off from your job, you have a little more time than you had when you were working really hard, and you got a different set of challenges. But when in prosperous times, when your business is booming, it tends to come with added responsibilities. And many of us who are new springers are very blessed and very prosperous, and we can say, you know, surely God understands that I have to see to those responsibilities. This is not a good time for me, Mark. This is not a good time for me to volunteer. It's not a good time for me to tithe. It's not a good time for me to share my faith. It's not a good time for me to set aside the amount of time that I need to set aside to do a bold agenda for God. Well, does God understand? Does God understand that you had to go to law school? Does God understand that, you know, you, you went to med school? Does he understand that, that you, you know, got your MBA? Uh, for a reason, and that that comes with that responsibilities. Does God understand that being an entrepreneur and starting your own business from scratch, that you know you you you're the one? I mean, you can't fall back on somebody else for payroll. Does does God understand? I mean, it can. Will God be able to contextualize how busy you are? Well, I've got good news and bad news for you. The good news is He understands, and the bad news is He understands. Jesus told a story about some guys who had prosperous times. And he talked about how that a king made a feast and invited prosperous people to come. And they all began, according to Jesus, making excuses. One said, I have just bought a field and I must inspect it. I have some investments. Please excuse me. And another said, I've just bought five pairs of oxen. In other words, I've, I've got some business I've got some business expenses here to, to see to. 
and my business is just going crazy right now. I just bought five pairs of oxen, and I want to go try them out. Well, a dummy shouldn't have bought them before he tried them out. But he, he said, I'll go try them out. Please excuse me. Another said, I have a wife, so I can't come. Doesn't say whether she was just couldn't take his attention off her. She said he couldn't come or what? Nothing said here. It's just I got a wife and I can't come. I, family, I got family responsibilities. Boy, Jesus kind of nailed all three, didn't he? The servant returned and told his master what they had said, and his master said, Gee, I understand. No. Master was furious. Why is God furious when we tell him our prosperity has made us too busy to serve God? It's because it's the very prosperity he gave us. In other words, we're using his prosperity as an excuse not to serve him. Let me tell you what, you'd have never made it through college if God hadn't helped you make it through college. You'd have never found that husband or found that wife if it hadn't been for God's grace or goodness. You'd have never had those children if it had not been for the goodness of God. You wouldn't even have a job if it weren't for God. You your brain wouldn't even function if it weren't for God. Nor would mine. In the book of Haggai, it was time to rebuild the temple. You know, God was allowing his people to come back from captivity. And the people said, you know, here's the thing. Many of us, we have room in our checkbook for all kinds of things or in our banking account. We have room for all kinds of things, but not for the cause of Christ in the world. Someone has said, you tell how devoted a believer you are just by looking at your checkbook or your, your banking stuff. Because Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be. He didn't say, where your heart is, your treasure will be. He said, where your treasure is, your heart will be. And so the people were saying, this is not a good time for us to invest in God's house. And God said, why is everyone saying it's not the right time for rebuilding my temple, asked the Lord. His reply to them is this, is it right, the right time for you to live in luxurious homes? When the temple lies in ruins, God is saying, you're saying it's not a good time to invest in my work. God is saying, this is a good time for you to invest in yourself. Is the time right? Why is the time right for you to invest in yourself and not right to invest in God, God would ask me. Or it could be somebody would say, Mark, I'm not at the right place at this time to take on bold agendas for God because the time is too bad. My place is, is a bad place. Now I understand Bad times tend to come with sufferings and fears. If good times tend to come with responsibilities, bad times tend to come with suffering and anxiety. And you can see how Satan works this, can't you? When is it ever the right time to do bold agendas for God? The time is either too good and you're too busy or too bad and you're too painful. That's how Satan works this. I want to challenge you tonight to think differently. I just have a sense. I don't know why I didn't bring this on the weekend, but I just feel like you guys are, you know, you, you come out on first Wednesday and you want to hear from God. I, I just really believe this is one of the most important messages I'm ever going to preach. I want you to think differently about the place where you are. 
I don't have time to tell this wonderful story. I hope you'll read it when you go home. There is a wonderful book, and we'll, we'll talk about this book in a wonderful series next year called Outliers. But in the story of the Persian captivity, there is a young woman, a Jewish girl. You can read her whole story in a book called Esther. That's a strange book. Esther is the only book in the Bible that doesn't mention the name of God, and yet God is almost in every verse. In the beginning of the book of Esther, it almost reads like a Shakespearean play. The king, Ahasuerus, is throwing a party for all of his, his intelligentsia and his leaders. Now, you can, you can sort of measure somebody by the size of the wedding that they can put on or the size of a party they can throw. Isn't that true in our culture today? This was some party, six months long. All you could eat, all you could drink. I mean, it was crazy. But now you can imagine if you've been in a party that long drinking that much, things got really crazy. And they did. And Ahasuerus asked for his queen to come out. Um, and we believe, many of us believe, that what he was asking her to do was to parade in front of his guests naked. Now, Ahasuerus probably would have never asked that if he'd been sober. It was a crazy thing to do, but Vashti, the queen, refused to do it. Good for her. And she wouldn't come out. And when everybody sobered up, the other nobles said to Ahasuerus, this is not good because our wives will see that Vashti has told you no and they will tell us no. And so you need to depose Vashti and get another queen. Now, this is a pagan culture, so we don't need to do a lot of commentary on what we've talked about up till now. But in the kingdom, there was a beauty contest held to see who would be the next queen. Hey, what a reality show that would have been. That would back American Idol right off the page, wouldn't it? And so, all these beautiful women were brought before the king to pick, and he picks Esther. And Esther is a Jewish girl who has been raised by her uncle, Mordecai, who is a very godly man. And so, without even realizing it, the queen of Persia is a Jewish girl named Esther. And the king does not know that she is Jewish, and Esther does not tell him. Now, there is a bad guy in the story, and I must hurry for time's sake, but the bad guy in the story's name is Haman. And Haman is like a mayor, or he is like a governor in the kingdom. He is a person of, of self-importance and elevated importance. And Haman likes to ride around town, and he wants everybody to bow. Do you know anybody? Maybe somebody where you work wants everybody to bow to them. Or maybe there's somebody in your family who wants everybody to bow to them. And if everybody doesn't bow, they get real upset. I mean, not, you know, not, but you know what I'm talking about. In Haman's case, he would ride through town, you know, in his Bentley, and everybody bowed to him, you know, Mr. Haman. Now, they may be flipping him off after his car passed, but they're bowing to him, you know, and they're scraping and everything. Well, Mordecai is standing there, and, and, and he doesn't bow to anybody but God. And so here comes, here comes Haman, and Mordecai is just standing there like this. Now, Haman should be happy because everybody else looks like a backside. But Mordecai standing there got him upset. And he was so upset, he not only wanted to kill Mordecai, he wanted to kill everybody in Mordecai's nationality. He wanted to kill every Jew in Persia. That's hundreds of thousands. 
And he went to the king and kind of like worked the king. And he said, look, we can take their stuff. And he, he said, I'll fund all this. He said, these people, they don't honor you. They don't, they're they're, they're, they're going to cause trouble. They're going to cause rebellion. We need to kill them while, while we have a chance. Haman was a forerunner of Hitler. He was also a forerunner of the Antichrist. We'll save that for another talk. And so the king, foolishly not, well, I, not, not understanding that he had just signed the death warrant of his queen, sit, signed it. He said, Haman, just do whatever you want to do. And so Haman, of course, set it up for a year in advance so that at this moment, a year in advance, all the Jewish people in the land would be killed. And someone brings Esther word that her uncle Mordecai is out at the palace gate and he's in sackcloth and ashes and Esther sends Mordecai some nice new clothes and, and says, send these out to encourage my uncle Mordecai. And, and, uh, and, and Mordecai sent word back and said, no, I'm, I refuse to be encouraged. Now, Mordecai says something to Esther right now that I think gives us the insight to what we need to know about how to think about what kind of place we're in right now. Mordecai said, if you remain completely silent at this time, Relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. Yet, who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Now, I get the feeling from Mordecai's question that Esther felt like it wasn't a good time for her to do something. Because she was queen, she was living the life, she's living the dream. She won the beauty contest. Everybody does everything she wants. She can have anything she wants. It's very awkward to risk your life and to stir up a hornet's nest. But Mordecai said to her, how do you know that you weren't brought to the place where you are for this time? You say, well, Mark, it's obvious that Esther was brought to be queen for that time. But real quickly, let me speak of some other Bible characters how about Joseph being put in prison for such a time as this? See, when Joseph was in prison, he could say, this is not a good time to serve God. But God was going to bring together, he, he was going to put in confluence a person and a place and a time. God brought Joseph to the prison for that time. Think about Moses on the backside of the desert, 40 years of being backstage. Why was he back there for such a time as this? God put a person and a place and a time together. And when the time was perfect, he spoke to him out of the burning bush. I think of a teenage girl living in a nowhere place, engaged to, a married, engaged to be married to a blue-collar working man who got the shocking news that, she was, that could have blown up her world, that she was going to have a baby. Mary was brought to that place for such a time as that. God aligned a person and a place and a time. Peter finishing a day's work, cleaning out his nets, a person and a place and a time. Elderly John, banished to the island of Patmos for preaching the word of God. The Russians said that will shut him up. It lit him up. And he wrote the book of Revelation, a person and a place and a time. Poverty-stricken Ruth, following the gleaners to pick up stray stalks in Boaz Field, a person and a place and a time. Rahab the harlot, living in the wall of Jericho when the spies came to her house, a person and a place and a time. David, left to be an errand boy, carrying food to his soldier brothers when Goliath came out, a person and a place and a time. See, here's what's so important about tonight's message. God knows how to navigate your life. He knows how to navigate you. 
into the right place at just the right time, his people in the exact position for the perfect opportunity. As I preach this evening, some of us are not doing great things for God because the times are too good and we're too busy. Or some of us are not doing bold things for God because we're in a bad place and it's too painful. Or it could be like Peter cleaning out his nets. It's too ordinary a time. Well, let me ask you some questions and ask myself some questions tonight. Here's the first one. Are you God's woman? Are you God's man? Do you belong to him? Have you trusted Jesus? Because if you've trusted Jesus, you're not only a saved sinner, you're an adopted princess. You're an adopted prince. You're God's person. All right? That's the first component. Where are you now? What kind of place are you in? I don't mean New Springs Worship Center. I mean, what kind of place are you in in life? You say, Mark, things are pretty good. I'm very busy. I'm trying to be everywhere I need to be. Or it could be things are pretty ordinary, some good, some bad. It's just sort of normal. Or it could be, Mark, I'm in a tough place right now. Okay? Instead of asking you if it's a good time to take on bold agendas for God, let me ask you Mordecai's question. You're a child of God. You're God's person. You know where you are. You know the place you're in. How do you know? God hasn't brought you right where you are for this time. How do you know that God hasn't skillfully navigated you according to his sovereign grace into the perfect position for this time? Are you blessed tonight? And what does that tell you? Are you normal? Are you normal life? For everybody going through hard times right now, they could tell you that normal is a gift. Are you going through a tough time right now? I know I could sound crazy, but if you're going through a tough time right now, this could be your greatest season. I've told you so many times about what happened to me almost three years ago, how that exhaustion and anxieties just, I just basically, my body had fired all the adrenaline it had, and at the end of 2010, I'd never been so low in my life. And I still remember that morning when Mary Alice and I flew out to Phoenix, and our board was so good just to say, Mark, you've invested in us for so long. Let us invest in you. And I was so exhausted. My greatest thing was I did not know where I was with God. You can get, you can get low enough to where it's very hard to hear God's message of comfort. Anybody been there? I mean, it was as if when I read the Bible, even when I read the Word of God, I would almost read just all the passages that would tell me how many times I'd failed. And I remember on Christmas Eve, Mary Alice and I went out, and I wanted to just read something that would build faith into my life. And the only bookstore that was open was Barnes & Noble. God bless Barnes & Noble, but it's not the greatest bookstore in the world when you want to read something on how to get close to God. But there were a few good books. I don't remember. I bought two or three. 
And I went home and I devoured them, went back to the condo. And one day in the next couple of days, and I think it was probably the lowest time of my life, I sat on the couch in Phoenix and I thought, what do I know for sure? And I began to write. I started with Christ and calling on his name and what it meant to call on the name of the Lord. And my fingers flew across the keys. And when I got back home, and was well. I found what I wrote and I thought, those are the questions someone who just prayed to receive Christ might write. And when you find this book that's folded into the packet that we give people right after they pray to receive Christ, this book was written on the darkest day of my life. And I just thought about it last week. The first words that hundreds, if not thousands of people will read right after they pray to receive Christ was what God led me to write on the darkest day of my life. How do you know that God hasn't brought you to this place for such a time as this. How do you know? And so many other things have come out of that experience. I can, it's like God just started my ministry over again. I just held a new, the new devotional book that comes out this year that I contributed to. I would have never contributed if I hadn't gone through that experience. So many of these pastors whose lives I invest in, I would have never had a chance if I had not gone through that experience. Whether your times are good or normal or bad, how do you know God hasn't brought you where you are for such a time as this? Tomorrow morning when you get up, wherever place you are, try facing the day. Look in the mirror and let the first words of your mouth be, I am here on assignment from the King. May God bless you. Thank you and good night.